0: Welcome to Biota Live, I'm Tom Barbele, and this is a continuation of the Biota podcasts. For more information on the Biota podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller, and I believe it's Bruce Damer. Hello, hello, Bruce. Hello, hello. Good to talk to you this evening. So, as you're a seasoned veteran with regards to Biota Live, you know we have some news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic, which... Uh, could be evolving in a variety of different directions. So we'll uh, we'll go through the news and notes first. If you too would like to participate in this evening's Biota Live, the contact number 646-200-0640. And if you're listening live through Blog Talk Radio, there is also an open chat client uh, that you can participate in if you don't want to call the U.S. number or if you're just listening and you have some questions. So please feel free to use the chat client if you have something to add to the discussion, the next episode will be in a fortnight's time, two weeks, October 17th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, Funding Artificial Life. This is a Scott Schaefer-suggested topic, and it's quite a, a hot topic currently in a number of different areas. I I'm, I'm, hope to uh, rekindle some communication with Justin line and see if he'd be interested in calling in for that chat. Uh, But in two weeks' time, October 17th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, funding Artificial Life. So, a wide variety of bits of news and notes. Um, I'd like to start probably with the Grey Thumb-related news. I had some uh, chatting online with Al Lundell last night with regards to Grey Thumb Silicon Valley. Al mentioned that uh, 10 people turned up. Al presented a series of news items that he thought related to the biota community I believe Asha Yadgar displayed his swarm-related uh, development. Scott Schaefer gave an update on that life. And Zan Gill was there as well talking about a NASA presentation that she's giving in the very near future, maybe even tomorrow. Have you, are you aware of any of these things, Bruce?
1: Yes, uh, Zan's session is at 4 p.m. on Tuesday the 7th, which is this coming Tuesday at NASA Ames Research Center. Do you know the topic? It actually is a wide-ranging uh, set of topics by some really interesting people, um, Osher included. But um, for my part, I'm presenting the EvoGrid uh, project.
0: Wow! It sounds like a good opportunity for biota CDs to be handed out as well.
1: I will have them in my bag.
0: Wonderful, wonderful! And have you heard any updates from Al in terms of how Greytham Silicon Valley went?
1: He, he says it went very well. I couldn't. I couldn't go. I was just completely worn out from travel and a number of things. Uh, but he said it went really well, and the um, uh, Scott's work was great. And Scott's recently put put it online. And Al has been doing a lot of research into how a life and the gray thumb communities can interact with other technologies. And he, Al's a news hound. He's He's been a journalist in Silicon Valley since 1980. He was the first West Coast editor of Byte magazine, so he just absorbs and associates news items. And I think, in a sense, he's finding a role within within Gray Thumb as, as that role, the, the journalist and the connector.
0: And he filmed his discussion as well as Usher, Scotts, and Zan's discussion as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing the video probably up on Google Video or related video sites, which I'll probably post to the Greytham blog as soon as Al gives me the link. Well, the other Greytham related news was Greytham Netherlands and uh, a hearty congratulations to Gerald de Jong. I thought he may be calling in this evening, but I was looking he was up very late relating to uh, Boing Boing and Make both highlighted uh, Gerald's work with Darwin at Home through some of his early viral videos. I remember talking a couple of weeks ago with regards to ways to promote your project and Gerald uh, has basically led the way with regards to these viral videos and they were picked up this week by Boing Boing and Make and potentially a wide variety of other sites as well. So Gerald had uh, an active chat session going as soon as he went to darwinathome.org and I was thoroughly impressed that he was corresponding with a number of the people that were coming to his site and pointing them in various directions, getting them subscribing to the Darwin at Home mailing list. But the important news is that Gerald put in his Darwin at Home podcast stuff relating to Grey Sun Netherlands. It was actually quite moving listening to the folk in the Netherlands uh, doing their Grey Sun presentations. It really gave a sense that this is truly an international movement. And I think in particular the sense that there are just so many deep thinkers out there that are uh, all vending together on this idea of artificial life. And although it isn't in my notes, I'd like to put a plug in here for Dick Gordon's book as well. that went to press this week. I was looking through the promo-related literature. You have to appreciate this is 125 pages just of promotional-related stuff. I think it's 1,078 pages long. Is that your recollection, Bruce?
1: I believe that... um adding when when they we decided to he decided to add the two of us Uh, it must have pushed the whole thing over a thousand
0: (laughs) yeah I I think I probably I combined writing well actually if you include dialoguing yes but I mean the wonderful thing about the book is how central our discussion is within the text I mean it's wonderful to uh, see such a strong dialogue associated with highly topical issues and also it's really almost Britannica-like analysis of the issues associated with something which is typically, you know, summarized in a single Dawkins book. Uh, Dick has gone to great lengths to bring together a wide variety of people from all all parts of the debate, and it was a real privilege to actually see um, my name in there, both as a a writer and a dialoguer, when I went through the a vast list of people that are involved. I'm, I'm sure you probably had a similar feeling, Bruce, as you looked through it.
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a very impressive uh, volume, and I, I'm hoping it gets the uh, the press that it deserves.
0: Yes, I was having some correspondence this week with Dick about how the, the press is actually going to be handled, and having had that correspondence with Dick, and then looking at the promotional. Uh, document, I was quite humbled that really you could give this book to anyone who even had a remote interest in the the topics covered and I'm sure they would get something very profound out of it. I uh, felt quite overwhelmed actually looking through it thinking of the uh, folk that I had thought of passing on the book to in terms of kind of media and science communicators and I think everyone will get something out of this book and it's Relatively recently priced in paperback. I was asked by a few folk whether there would be an electronic version available because obviously now community electronic versions are all the rage. But I think it's um, on Amazon's site it says $44 US for the paperback version, which for more than a 1,000 pages is probably quite reasonable, I think. Yeah, very. In any case, the next piece of news involves Bruce and me as well. When I did the Floss Weekly interview a couple of months ago, it nearly broke the biota site, and Bruce and I have had some hurried discussions over the past week about how we can distribute some of the services that the biota site provides, so... As a listener to Biota Live, what can you do with regards to this? Well, the first thing that you can probably do is subscribe to the podcast. If you're not already subscribed, you don't have to use iTunes. There are a wide variety of what is called in the community podcatchers, um, some written in Java, uh, Linux, Windows, Mac, all, all variety of, of flavors. And that means that we can host the podcasts, which are the primary uh, bandwidth hogs for the Biota site, anywhere we like. Um, up until probably about eight or nine months ago, I had been hosting a majority of the podcasts on com and I'll move the recent podcasts back to my own site to handle some of the uh, heavy lifting initially with regards to the bio to site. But if you're interested in um, providing bandwidth with regards to the podcasts, that's something that we're thinking about too. Bruce and I have been throwing backwards and forwards a number of ideas over the past week about how we can deal with the uh, expanding capacity of the bio to podcast. And really, I mean, it's a wonderful problem to have, isn't it,
1: Bruce? Oh, it is. It really is. And I, I think uh, several of our podcasting compatriots, doing, they, they reach that threshold where they realize they need another server or they need to park things around, and then they know that they've got the listener audience.
0: Yeah, and it's certainly a, a wonderful thing, uh, particularly through things like the Biota Facebook group, getting a sense of how international the community is, and in particular, I mean, we're going to be talking a bit about uh, uh, Herb Noel's uh, project, Evo Rand, Herb is in Saudi Arabia, he's also the reason, or one of the reasons that we have a Biota Lite version of the Biota podcast, and certainly Biota Lite has become remarkably popular i mean for spoken audio you really don't notice any degradation in the biota Lite version of this podcast so if you're looking to subscribe but you may not have the bandwidth to necessarily download the large show uh, formats i'd check out biota Lite because the you know the audio quality is similar so over the next few months as, as this progresses i will give occasional updates to this i think just by sharing some of the biota site, particularly the podcasts between two web posts, we should be able to handle a, a majority of the traffic currently, but, I mean, the podcast, in terms of listener base, just continues to grow, so this may be an expanding problem that we may have to visit uh, in the next few months. So I have down here EvoGrid update with the view that we were going to talk about open source this evening, Bruce, but I, I hear that you want to talk a lot about the EvoGrid. Some of my own feedback, uh, last week I put in the feed, the video footage, or at least the last 18 minutes of video footage, of the Biota 3 uh, breakout group circa 1999. And I think I've referred to it in previous podcasts, and I thought this is ridiculous. I can probably put it in an MP4 format so other folks who listen to the podcast through the podcast feed can actually download the video and actually get a sense of, you know, what an artificial life community of 30 people all very interested in in you know a focused project like the biota world project was at the time, but what was always interesting to me is that part of the video. I'm not sure if you went back and looked at it, Bruce. There is a component, and I think um, uh, I, my mind's gone blank. The fellow from Sun.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, um, that would have been that would have been uh, Jan Hauser.
0: Jan Hauser. He asked a question about, in, in terms of the people in the audience who had um, not necessarily a vested interest but depended on the results of Biota World for their continued development. And I think a majority of the audience raised their hand in terms of actually having a stake in the continuation of the project. For me, that was very powerful as a kind of historical reference because you see Shortly after that period of time, through a variety of factors, a large portion to do with uh, academic and commercial funding, uh, but certainly of the group there, I mean Jeffrey is there, uh, Gerald is there, obviously you are there, standing up, but a large portion of that community is is no longer part of the kind of broader biota discussion and if you look at the period of time from Biota 3 through to Biota 4 through to when we started doing you know, the Biota podcast or even when I picked up my editorial duties with Biota.org, a lot of change had gone through the community. As I was watching it um, last week before I put it in the feed, a question occurred to me which I think is a a question which ultimately will hinge on the success of the EvoGrid in terms of a participating project. When you look at the footage from BIOTA 3, when you look at people raising their hands, Bruce, what have you learned in terms of how to structure a project that will not, you know, fall the same problems that occurred with regards to the BIOTA World Project?
1: Well, what's interesting is um, we had sort of put out a, a grand vision of how do we get all these different artificial life simulation environments to work together. And the agreement of the group was the first thing that they needed was a portal, a web portal, to uh, direct people to all the different simulations. So that was sort of the low-hanging fruit. And to some extent, the biota.org site, the former uh, Artificial Life Walk of Fame did that, but that was offline. And then the org site did that. And um, the one thing that did come out of it that was an act of collaboration was there was people from Math Engine who built a physics engine for gaming uh, and were there and presenting, and Tom Ray was there and presenting, and they got together and built, he built a, a Japanese funded project called Virtual Life, which was actually Carl Sims' Swimming Creatures running in real time, and I got a, a CD of this uh, in 2000 and installed it and and it ran and i think that was probably the tom ray's last effort directly in the artificial life field so at least one collaboration came out of it i think gerald was very very inspired by the meeting but the the failure to kind of do a uh, an entire uh, sort of scope of what we had drawn on the blackboard was directly due to uh, unforeseen circumstances in the dot-com crash that was about to, about to happen uh, only months uh, or six or eight months uh, later that forced uh, me to go off and uh, make basically win clients customers with NASA and Adobe to keep the uh, keep digital space going and the fact is that you, you do need to have a beating heart you need to have someone who every day gets up and is driving the process and um, whether as a volunteer or on a grant or something like that. You have to have someone that they're really a big chunk of their job. And I think I feel now with uh, it in 2008, uh, given that the EvoGrid has become sort of a research passion for me and it's also the subject of my Ph.D. research, that I'll be that beating heart that will get up every day and see, see how to move it forward.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a complicated element with regards to open source, which is going to be the, the topic for discussion this evening. But um, I think the interesting thing that I took away from watching the video, I first saw it about two years ago, and many thanks to Al Landell, who's the both the origins of the video and also the person who digitized it, put it on a DVD and sent it to me about two years ago. I watched and there's um, probably three or four videos worth um maybe six hours worth of video that Al has with regards to Bio Three, And I watched it um, over probably a two-evening period. I found it very, very moving because you really got to see, in some regard, the passion of the participants, but also, as you say, the inevitability of the dot-com crash, the immense sense of hope and sense that this would be continuing for, you know, decades to come, the kind of funding and intelligence and intellect and interest. And in large part, what happened with open source kind of represents the rebuilding of of those ideas, although um, Jan Hauser talked about open source in his particular presentation. Obviously, Sun was uh, an earlier champion with regards to the open source movement. But I think the distinction of what is going on currently and what went on in 2000, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001, is that we have a group of people, um, you know, fundamentally myself and yourself included, uh, Gerald, you know, the the list of names go on, they've all participated in Biota Live, a few haven't, but we'd like to have them on, who are all passionate, but aren't necessarily getting paid. In fact, the majority of us aren't getting paid at all. ...and haven't been paid for probably more than a decade to develop what we feel passionately about. So that is the distinction between the contemporary community and historically what I saw in the crowd of Biota 3... ...is that whilst you have a group now who may not have the finances to attend an international conference... ...we have people that are listening to this podcast who doing their own tinkerings again, you know, shout out to people like uh, Herb Noel and Scott Schaefer, who have both launched their projects publicly this week through the boat Conversations mailing list. But we have a community that is built up around fundamentally hobbyists, people that aren't earning money, that don't have any expectation of earning money, that have an implicit understanding of the way in which they can you know, pass on and share their knowledge. And this kind of Community vision is so centrally part of the open source movement as well, that it's quite fascinating how these two things have been intertwined. I was looking today, and I I do recommend for folks who are listening to the podcast to have access to a web browser, that you go to evogrid.org and actually look at Bruce's PhD proposal because I found the timeline very fascinating because there are a number of kind of um, micro steps in the timeline that are missed, but as someone who develops an open source project, I'm intimately aware, you know, the the efforts that need to go from 0.5 to 1.0 in terms of of development and these kind of things. So in just closing to this uh, discussion associated with the EVO group before we get into open source... Do you have any updates that you want to uh, do? You want to put out to the podcast listeners?
1: Yes, uh, and just sort of in a, a short recap of what the EvoGrid idea it is. Really, just at this point, a concept. Um, there's two parts to it, and I kind of call it the EvoGrid broad or wide, or you could even call it the EvoGrid intelligent design. Uh, to get back to uh, the topic of Richard's um, book. Um, but that is where you take existing artificial life simulations, where the where engineers, dreamers, programmers have put in structures. They've kind of intelligently designed them, and to watch for things, things like environments like Darwin at Home, and you allow them to send objects and communicate back and forth. Uh, so there's a grid of um, so a, a creature from one simulation arrives in the forest of another. That's the EvoGrid grid broad idea, and the feeling is that that would allow all the, simula- all the simulations to start growing and become sort of citizens of a larger ecosystem. The EvoGrid Deep um, concept is something else, and it actually came out of a discussion with Richard Gordon during the writing of the book chapters um, earlier this year and his chapter, Richard Gordon's chapter, or one of them, is about Hoyle's tornado and the origins of artificial life. And Hoyle's tornado was a sort of a science fiction-y idea by Fred Hoyle that if um, a tornado came through a junkyard, would it assemble a, a Boeing 747? And what Richard Gordon does in his chapter is he sort of takes that as a cue and says, hey guys, if you really want to show that artificial life is... A useful field, or is a powerful metaphor or tool, you've got to build simulations where you don't have any fingers in the in the pie. You you've got to build a sort of digital primordial soup with properties, but not design things in explicitly. Allow uh, self-organization to occur, which we do see in a lot of software systems, but allow that to go long enough that you you have replicating forms and you have things that might called protobiology and so that that kind of impacted me a lot and, and discussions with him on that was I was writing my chapter and that's in a sense what's informed the Evo grid deep and step one for me is to uh, be able to explain this to audiences because I do a lot of public speaking in a lot of different venues and it occurred to me a couple of months ago that we need a movie you know what how do you communicate ideas in the modern time, you put something on YouTube, and if you've got a good animation that that explains the concept, people really understand it, something that's a minute long or something like that. So I started sketching storyboards one morning, just came to me in a dream, just as about everything else does, and now uh, Ryan, who's one of the members of our NASA team that does work for uh, NASA for digital space. Uh, he's a great animator and using his tools. He's in Australia, and he's uh, taking these storyboards and starting to do the stills, and he'll be doing the transitions. And you can see all that being developed at evogrid.org, E-V-O-G-R-I-D.org. Uh, the script is there, and the first little still shots are there. Um, so there will be a very public, uh, public development of this film. And what the film will do... In, an, in a very abstract, high-level way, show how the Evo Grid Deep might work. And uh, without saying much more than that, it's just kind of there's a cube that seems to be resting on a grid of, of graphics processors that grows ever more dense as more processes are added, and uh, particles within the, the cube uh, gradually are moving quicker and quicker and interacting more and more, and then they become self-organized within that cube. Uh, entities emerge, and uh, that I'll, I will save the, uh, the the grand finale ending. Uh, I, will, I won't uh, give that away.